Thank you, Scott, and welcome to The Exchange, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and ahead this hour, a five-star fund manager gives us his tensions trade. We have Restaurant Brands Executive Chairman Patrick Doyle delivering his read on the economy, and we're trading three big names with earnings on deck. Plus, of course, we'll dive into this morning's CPI report. Stocks have now turned lower and bond yields are lurching higher as markets digest the hotter than expected numbers. In fact, take a look at the yield on six-month Treasury bills hitting nearly 5.1% today. If we close above 5%, it'll be for the first time in more than 15 years. And as I speak, we're also getting some headlines from Philly Fed President Patrick Harker. Let's get over here to Steve Leisman for all of those details, Steve. Hey, Kelly. Yeah, uh, Philly Fed President Patrick Harker saying, He expects the Fed to raise rates a few more times, and in doing so, he says 25 basis point hikes will be appropriate in the future. Policy rates, he says, will be restrictive enough sometime this year for the Fed to eventually go on hold. Notice he said hold, not cuts. The Fed goal is a modest slowdown in the economy. He sees it uh, growing at 1% this year en route to 2% or trend growth 24 and 25. He does see unmistakable signs, he says, of a slowing in interest rate sensitive sectors like housing. And he does see progress in bringing down inflation on an array of goods. But other Fed speakers, Kelly, basically... uh, towing the hawkish line, so to speak, in the sense of uh, Logan from Dallas seeing more rate hikes this year, uh, as well as earlier today. Um, I was going to ask like, yeah. what the message you think is from, so we, we have had a chance, it's not like they're going to change their speeches to CPI necessarily, but do you think there's consistency here between the data and what, what they're saying? I think so. I think today they're feeling pretty good about where they are. Um, and especially when you look at how the market has come back up to where they are, I think they're feeling pretty good about their call for this average five and an eighth or five and a quarter, uh, five and an eighth to up to 540 uh, rate rate uh, forecast for this year. I, I saw the chart earlier. Right? We, we've closed. We have it here. We have, guys, if you have my Fed rate outlook chart in the back there, we can uh, deliver the to Kelly exactly what she's asking for. It's the gap has really closed. There, there's the green line. That's where the Fed is. I don't know if that should be a green line or a red line. I don't know what color True. that line should be, but it's green according to our art department. Um, and, and that 507, guys, I don't know if you have the next chart, which is the two bars and what's happened is that january 24 contract which is the end of the year it had been as low as 434 look at that i ask it and there it is 434 on january 18th and now it's 507 so what's the math there 80 basis points right there 70 basis points that's how much more hiking is now priced is now priced into the market and that's a big move and rallying to some extent during this period this is a fascinating question yeah. Well, let's bring in Dana to uh, okay. talk more about it. Today's CPI print does play right into my next guest thesis that sticky inflation will be a problem for the Fed and will keep rates higher for longer. Dana Peterson is chief economist at the conference board. Dana, welcome. I mean, but what Steve is saying is kind of, well, it raises an interesting question. To, to your point, the market has come around to this higher for longer view. Why do you think equities have held up OK in light of that? Well, I think it's because of the labor market. We continue to see strong gains, and most of the losses that we are seeing in employment are in those pandemic, among those pandemic darlings that don't really surprise us. But we're still seeing uh, very strong employment. The unemployment rate's at 3.4%. Labor shortages are still a thing, and people are still out there quitting. So I think that's probably why equity markets are still rallying, or or at least optimistic, despite the fact that inflation was definitely sticky in January. I'm glad that you in particular are here because you guys in particular have the one thing that worries me, maybe the second most about the economy right now. My first most worry is the yield curve. My second most is your leading index. It's horrendous. It's horrendous. I mean, it's never been this bad without a deep or without a recession of some kind. 
how would you would you try to explain that away or do you say, yeah, that's that's what it's telling us could happen here? Well, we're definitely not explaining it away. And our leading index has been signaling some kind of recession for quite some time, uh, really landing right about now in the first part of the year of 2023. But also when we ask CEOs and consumers whether they think there's a recession on the way. And for the most part, there, there seems to be agreement. So it's leading indicators, confidence. And so we need the data to start bearing that out. And that I raise it, Steve, because it, it it's sort of like, yes, the labor market is so strong and it's the fly in the ointment and it's crazy and the markets come around in the Fed's view. But, it, but all, if Dana's right and we just wait a little while, could it be telling us a very different story? It could be. I think it's important to realize these indicators, and Dana, tell me if I'm wrong about this, they're predictive, and they're historically predictive, but they're not causal in the sense that the inverted yield curve does not cause a recession, For sure. and the LEI does not cause a recession, so to speak. It, it just tells you that when these things happen, it tends to create, it, it tends to have a recession happen. It doesn't create it. Um, there's an important number tomorrow, which is the retail sales number. Mm. And, and if I could just throw it to Dana here. Um, Dana, we have a CNBC rapid update, which is the mean of, of, of uh, forecast for the first quarter at 06. Um, I don't know where you are on that, but, but, but the consumer, the jobs have been stronger. We, it, one of the details in this report, Kelly, was that Real earnings were actually positive this month. On the month, but for the year still down. For the year still down, still down, but but for the month is higher. And I think they were flat for December, which is an improvement for people that earnings are at least keeping pace with the inflation numbers. Strong job growth. Um, Tomorrow, if we get a strong retail sales, are you anywhere close, Dana? Are you still in that less than a full integer (laughs) for GDP (laughs) for, for, for the first quarter? Yes, we still have uh, roughly a half percentage point decline in in real GDP for the first quarter. Um, Some of that is going to reflect what we think is going to be slowing among consumers. Certainly in December, we saw that consumers began losing momentum on spending on services. So tomorrow's data, uh, most of it's going to be on goods, and we know that goods prices were still elevated in January, and so that may have continued to weigh on goods. But it's the restaurants. Are people stopping uh, or at least pulling back on those discretionary services types of activities? That's really what's going to bring down uh, GDP growth. But I would also add that you're probably going to have continued volatility in trade and inventory, certainly as right. businesses are trying to rebalance. But your negative data for Dana for the first quarter? Yes, we still are. <laughs> hmm. So that, that creates the prospect tomorrow, Kelly, that the, the, the thing that Dana says is holding up the market. Um, in the face of higher than expected inflation, strong growth could go away tomorrow, and the market may have to reconsider that right. equation. Wouldn't you say, Steve, I mean, we've all been talking like the CPI, and that, this was a whole lead-up for weeks, honestly, has been to this morning's CPI report. I wonder if the labor market data is more important right now, because it feels as though payrolls was a bigger factor, will remain a bigger factor, because it's telling us whether the cycle is rolling over or not. Part of not fighting the Fed is not fighting the way the Fed thinks. Whether all of this is true is irrelevant to the fact that Powell thinks this way. And so to the extent that Powell has fingered labor as a key to inflation, you're absolutely right. If labor does not weaken, then you cannot expect Powell to uh, either stop or or cut if he doesn't get the help from the labor market. And Dana, quick final word when we 
kind of slice and dice this morning's report and try to figure things out. The headline was hotter than expected. Supercore, uh, exclude uh, services X real estate, was softer than expected. But then I noticed Annette Markowska over at Jeffrey said, well, wait a minute. If you strip down to the sort of the super, super core, then things actually look stickier. So she's not, she doesn't even, she's not even convinced that we're seeing moderation here. So I'm just curious what you think is the most important way to interpret what we just learned this morning. Well, I think that we need to look at look at it holistically, right? So goods had been coming off in terms of inflation, and then we saw a turnaround. So will that persist? And on the services side, you still have rents rising. And that's that's the key here. We really need shelter costs to come off to have really big gains in slowing inflation. And then when you look at services excluding housing, which is that, you know, that super core, you still have the usual suspects like restaurants and and uh, insurance and also medical care still driving up prices on the services. So you need all of these pieces to to slow and in particular the housing component. Yeah. All right. We'll leave it there. Steve, what, what's next? We have any, are we done with Fed speak for the day? No, I got John Williams coming up at uh, 205 right. and then uh, retail tomorrow and probably a bunch more Fed speak, I think. I'm well, not really we'll sure. We'll see you in about 55 minutes time <laughs> for that. Steve, thank you very much. Uh, as we keep an eye on the market, Dana, thank you as well. We really, really appreciate it. Uh, Dow's down about 128 points. We're off the lows when we were down more than 400 just a little while ago. In fact, bond yields trying to figure out what the most important takeaway here is as well. And this is just one of the tensions in the market. My next guest has a couple of ways to play these unresolved tensions. And he's here to talk about it. Matthew McClendon is portfolio manager and co-head of the global value team at First Eagle. And our own Rick Santelli is here to round things out as well. Welcome to you both. Matthew, I'll just start with you. And, and you're kind of picking up this idea of, listen, this, this thing could turn a number of different ways. Where's kind of the safest place to be if you're going to be in equities right now? Well, it's tricky because when you look at equities from a top-down perspective, Markets are pricing uh, a relatively soft landing here. Equity PEs are back to 20 times trailing earnings. Market breadth is fairly broad. We see the same thing in credit markets. And so I think the key thing is if um, the yield curve is correct in what it's telling us and and some of these other uh, uh, conference board consumer indicators that uh, you've been discussing, then I think that there is uh, risk to um, the complacency in Mm -hmm. in markets right now. And so I think it, it means that you've got to look at companies that have the ability to do okay if the economy continues to sort of chug along here, um, but have some form of resilience, uh, were there to be a, a step down in the economy. And, and those companies, most broadly speaking, are companies that have had some kind of cost pressure in this window of a hot economy that could benefit from a slowing economy. Sure, and you've got names globally. I'm just going to mention some of the U.S. tickers, HCA, a healthcare play, um, Colgate, a Staples, Willis Towers Bank in New York, kind of higher rate beneficiaries. Come back to this in just a moment. Rick, I think a lot of people would go, I'm not that excited about anything except trying to get on Treasury Direct and scoop up some 5% six-month T-bills right now. Well, it's, well it's, listen, it's, the notion of go ahead, Rick, the notion of investing in T-bills is, is a good idea. Uh, the problem with all good ideas is that they don't last forever. And if inflation comes down and it will, and we see that servicing the debt keeps getting more expensive and we're going to have to make adjustments and we will ultimately those T-bill rates are going to start to come down a bit. And there's the rub. Even if it's in a year or two, 
then you have to figure out where you're going to be moving your money next. So uh, that's the issue there. It's hard to argue with over 5%, especially in at least what's considered the most risk-free environment. When it comes to equities, though, I'm sure our guest must have had some good picks that he was long because really since the first few days of January, outside of those, the equity markets have really come to life. And they've come to life at a time where inflation to many is too high based on history. Who wouldn't agree with that? But then again, when we look at the headlines today, most of the headlines are is that inflation was hotter than expectations. I said it on the air live, and it's true. But expectations isn't really what makes the market go round. That was the first 15 minutes of trade till people got straightened out. What makes the world go round is, is that dealing in the realities of the moment. And the realities of the moment have Fed fund futures contracts making new lows, putting in an extra helping of Fed. Steve mentioned it this morning. He mentioned it 10 minutes ago. The markets and the Fed are basically on the same page. Who isn't really on the same page are investors who keep buying the dips because they do believe that if you see through the fog of the next couple of quarters, that you're going to be highly rewarded. But if you wait until all the academics and smart people of the world say, hey, all clear, hit the bell, there's going to be very little money left on the table. And I challenge all of our guests who continually bring up the fact that we're probably going to be less than an integer for first quarter GDP. How can they possibly think inflation is going to go wild in that type of environment? Matthew, I will hand the mic over to you. Uh, and I think in, in Rick's point there is this idea of people looking past a, a slowdown that might be coming or, or, or trying to, to, they're still afraid they're going to miss out on gains here. I mean, what would you say to that? Look, I think there's a little bit of hope in that conjecture. Uh, I, I think if you look back at historical cycles, you know, the typical post-crisis environment uh, that's been associated with sustainable returns in equity markets has been one where monetary policy has already moved from restrictive to accommodative and the yield curve has shifted positive or unemployment rates have shifted from being below average to being above average. We haven't even seen negative payrolls at this point in time. So I think there's a lot of things that can happen that can weigh on sentiment negatively uh, between now and when, uh, you know, one would feel comfortable saying um, the worst is behind us. Having said that, uh, I agree with Rick that, you know, the ability to time these things with a scientific precision is somewhat spurious. And so I think our approach is to have a range of different investments uh, that can be resilient in different states of the world and to have some potential ballast. You know, we, we have some cash uh, yielding better than it was, um, but we also have a potential hedge in gold. And I think, you know, one of the things that can happen in the state of the world that Rick is talking about is if um, treasury yields go a lot lower from these levels, one has to ask the question of what the equilibrium value of the dollar will be in that state of the world. It's benefited so much from the carry trade, despite uh, negative current account fundamentals and despite a longer term fiscal outlook that has a lot of question marks attached to it. Yeah. So you think it's going lower? I think over the medium term, uh, there is downside uh, skew risk uh, to the dollar. And, uh, and, and I think that's something that uh, investors need to think about when they construct a portfolio that uh, some amount of international diversification may be prudent yeah. uh, against that backdrop. 
And, and you have uh, FEMSA, Schindler, Fanuc. I mean, a couple of different names here. As I mentioned, these aren't just U.S. plays, and a lot of people have been thinking through that uh, angle as well. Guys, we have to leave it there. Thank you for your time today. It's great to see you both. Matthew McClendon of First Eagle and our own Rick Santelli. Coming up, market down 116. Popeye's parent company, Restaurant Brands, posting a mixed quarter, announcing a shakeup in the C-suite, and executive chairman Patrick Doyle of Domino's Pizza fame joins us next with more on that. Shares are down 3%. Plus, from building to rent and powering your home. We've got every angle covered in today's earnings exchange. We're awaiting results from Airbnb, Generac, and Taylor Morrison. And as we head to break, let's get a look at the Dow, which has been all over the place today, from up a couple hundred pre-market, down 400 this morning. Now we're down 115, and the Nasdaq's up a quarter percent. Ten-year yield, watch it closely, 375. We're back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Welcome back to The Exchange. Shares of restaurant brands, the parent company of Burger King and Popeyes, are down about 3% after posting mixed results. The company also naming Chief Operating Officer Joshua Kobza as its new CEO. Joining us to discuss all of that, as well as his outlook on the consumer, is Restaurant Brands International Executive Chairman Patrick Doyle. You all know him as the wizard behind the incredible outperformance of Domino's Pizza last decade. Patrick, it's a real pleasure. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Kelly. Appreciate you having me on. I went back to look at the stock performance. I, I don't need to remind you, I guess, but Domino's went up 23-fold from 2010 to 2018 with you at the helm. So if I were RBI, I'd be feeling pretty good right now saying, <laughs> OK, the, and you were doing tech in pizza before anyone was talking about you know, tech across the economy. So um, do tell, look, it, it's a challenged company. It's made no, uh, it's not hiding that. Uh, they're trying to bring back the flame or whatever, calling the initiative at Burger King. Um, make the case for me, and I know you are probably one of the biggest shareholders as well now in the company. How do you get this stock up consistently, uh, especially with the cons- potential consumer slowdown heading our way? Yeah, thanks, Kelly. Well, you know, it, it really, it's a couple of things. First of all, the, the thing that the four brands have in common is I truly believe all four of them have the best food in each of their categories. The Whopper is amazing. The Chicken sandwich out of Popeyes, the you know Tim's coffee, and I mean it just and Firehouse has terrific subs. So you start with great food at all of these, and then what you need to take that to is you know also giving a great experience, getting the pricing and promotion right, bringing digital in, which you know certainly was a big part of of what happened at uh, at my old company. But then the other thing that we announced, I think it was very important today, is we're going to start releasing our franchisee four-wall EBITDA. So the economics of the units are ultimately what drive growth in your restaurant counts. So if we've got great operators who are committed and we deliver to them great unit economics and they're confident about the future um, from the investments that they're going to make in more restaurants, you're going to generate growth which is ultimately going to generate great returns for our investors. How do you, I mean, how do you get the magic back a little bit? I mean, all of these, you know, and again, Popeye's has been very successful in that regard. I don't want to downplay that, but Tim Hortons had a little bit of a skid here with its U.S. launch. Burger King spends a lot on marketing, but the brand perception has fallen throughout the years. So do you restore that through marketing spend? Do you try to go, are we talking about TikTok influencers? Do you think just people have to give it a chance and they'll see that that things are changing? Um, How much and, and where is that investment spending to, to really get people back in the doors. 
Yeah. So first of all, Tim's, um, you know, which is Canadian based, is an unbelievable business and brand. And, you know, they, they may have had a little bit of trouble during the pandemic because, you know, as a coffee based morning-based brand, which has been expanding into lunch and dinner. Losing those commuters certainly hurt, but the business is coming back very strongly. So Tim's is in great shape. Popeye's is in great shape. Firehouse still relatively small. The international business has been booming and a great team there. So really it comes down to BK in the US and the Reclaim the Flame program, which combines our investments into more marketing dollars, investments into upgrading technology in the stores and to re-imaging those stores. Um, Also with a real emphasis on improving the guest experience, which I think our customer satisfaction was up 20 points Hmm. from the third quarter to the fourth quarter. You do all of those things, you're seeing that we're starting to generate growth. Um, the advertising that's out right now with for the Whopper is, uh, is terrific and really breaking through. It gives me confidence. We've got work to do. We've got some franchisees who have some balance sheets that may need to be cleaned up a bit. We'll sure. work through those things, but I'm confident we can get there. And honestly, the rest of the businesses are overall in very good shape. Firehouse, I thought, was maybe a recent acquisition. I'm not as familiar with it uh, as a customer, but there is another pretty famous subchain that apparently is up for sale right now. Um, would you be open to adding Subway to the portfolio and, and, and or any other targets? I mean, why stop it for? Yeah, so first of all, we've got plenty to work on right now, so I, I don't think that's in the, in the cards <laughs> anytime soon. Um, but, uh, but Firehouse is our, is our brand in the, in the subspace we love the food. We love the opportunity there. Um, lots of growth ahead. Subway is a very, very different um, situation there. And, you know, it's a big brand, big business already. I'm not sure that you've got as much growth ahead just based on the scale of the business today. So we're much happier with Firehouse, with the growth trajectory ahead um, by building out that brand, both in the U.S. and ultimately around the world. Let me come back to the economy because, again, your um, comp, if I read it correctly, is basically all stock. You have to hit 6% per annum to kind of, you know, get these rewards. If we're, I would be so nervous if we're heading into a consumer downturn, and maybe we're not, but let, Kelly's feeling bearish, so let's just say we are. <laughs> How do you... What? How do you plan, invest, and, and deal with that uncertainty while also trying to accomplish this turnaround? I mean, truly, what happens on the macro front here? Wouldn't you say that ha- is going to have the biggest near-term effect on where the shares go? Yeah. So, Kelly, first of all, I wouldn't term it a turnaround, right? I mean, the, the business has been performing well. There's one business that needs some focus. But, you know, look, I'm, I'm in for the long term. So I made my investment. Um, I can't touch it for five years so I am all in. I'm committed, and honestly, the you know the risks around a recession, the slowdown in the economy, the biggest thing to watch from the restaurant perspective um, is employment. Yeah. Employment is the number one driver of of consumption in the restaurant category. The you know the the employment levels still uh, employment overall is still robust. Um, it may have slowed down in terms of growth, but you know you are not yet seeing um, really any weakness in the employment numbers. As long as employment is good, I'm pretty confident about the category overall. And then it becomes, you know, how do we outperform against the rest of the category? 
quick, quick final question then on that front. That also means a little bit maybe of, of margin pressure, and that goes back to the technology you're so famous for. Should we expect any major in, uh, initiatives on that front in order to keep labor costs from you know, becoming a, an issue if, if they still are? Yeah, I, look, digital is going to be a big part of the story here. There's a lot that we can do. Um, we already, about one-third of our business is already on digital channels around the world. A lot of opportunity to grow that. Certainly, that brings with it not only higher margins because of higher check averages on digital orders, but it also drives efficiency in the restaurants because the customer is effectively taking the order themselves right. and using their own labor for that. So there's a lot of advantage as you shift people to digital early for us, but we've already got a good base at about a third of our business, and we will certainly be doing lots of things to invest there, grow that faster, which I think is going to help our, our franchisees' unit economics. Uh, we'll be glued to it uh, to see how it goes. Patrick, thanks so much for joining us. Um, you know, Again, such, it, one of the great stories of the 2010s, and now it'll be fun to follow along on this journey as well. Thanks for your time today. We appreciate it. Thanks, Kelly. Patrick Doyle, Executive Chairman of Restaurant Brands International. Still ahead, speaking of brick and mortar, Amazon CEO says they're ready to go big on brick and mortar stores. Should it make shareholders nervous? Does Amazon have a defendable track record or are they throwing away good money? And as we head to break, let's look at the Dow heat map. The index down 142 points with Travelers, one of the worst performers, interestingly. Boeing leading the way. We'll have more on that in just a moment here on The Exchange. Welcome back to The Exchange. Markets have been all over the board. We're down 120 points right now on the Dow, about even on the S&P. And the Nasdaq is up a quarter percent despite the increase we've seen in interest rates. So 375, as I mentioned, on the 10-year, it was even higher earlier on. So that's an area to watch. Also, keep an eye on shares of Ford, moving sharply lower in the past hour after the company paused production and shipments of the electric F-150 Lightning pickup. The stock is off session lows, down about 1% right now. Now, the automaker says it's due to a potential battery issue, but the Declined to go into detail after saying it's being uh, investigated after a vehicle showed a potential problem during its pre-delivery quality inspection. We've got more on the story at CNBC.com. And we mentioned that Boeing is leading the Dow, and it's hitting a new 52-week high today after announcing the delivery of 38 jetliners in January. It's down from December, still higher than a year ago. And that doesn't include this massive order from Air India today of nearly 500 aircraft from both Boeing and Airbus. The 220 Boeing aircraft, that's a 34 billion dollar offer here, making it Boeing's third largest sale of all time in dollar value and second largest in quantity. Wow. And that's how you get it leading the Dow. Let's get to Tyler Matheson now for a CNBC News update. Tyler. Kelly, thank you very much. The White House saying the U.S. intelligence community is considering the possibility the three unknown objects shot down over the U.S. and Canada could be balloons tied to commercial or research entities and therefore totally benign. But NSC spokesperson John Kirby says no debris has been found yet, so there isn't a lot of information so far to work with. Former Vice President Mike Pence plans to fight the Justice Department's subpoena, requiring him to testify about former President Trump's attempts to overturn the 2020 election. That's what a source familiar with his plans is telling NBC News. His lawyers will argue that because he was acting as Senate president on January 6th, he is shielded by the Constitution's so-called speech and debate clause that protects U.S. representatives and senators from in, who are engaged in legislative activity.
And former President Trump responding now to Nikki Haley entering the 2024 race for president. Trump said he wishes Haley luck in her candidacy. Haley had initially said she would not run for president if Trump decided to run again. But she has since walked back those statements, quite obviously. Kelly, over to you. All right, Tyler, thanks. I'll see you soon. Coming up, if you build it, they will rent it or power it. A special homeowner's edition of Earnings Exchange is coming up with results from Taylor Morrison, Airbnb, and Generac all on deck. And before we go, here's a look at the major indices and a Valentine's Day message from our team to yours. Markets are red, investors are blue, but after the break, we'll have stock picks for you. We're back after this on The Exchange. Welcome back. We've made it through the heart of earnings season, but we're still nowhere near done. And I have to talk about Generac today. So let's get to earnings exchange where we give you the action, the story and the trade and three key names on deck. And we'll start with Airbnb reporting tonight. It's higher into the print and up 39 percent to start the year after shares got cut in half last year. Now, they've actually beaten earnings and revenue six out of the past eight quarters. Dear Jabosa has the story here and Gina Sanchez has our trades. Chief market strategist at Lido Advisors and a CNBC contributor. Welcome, guys. Deirdre, Airbnb and be so biggie. What are you watching? So as you said, it's had a huge run up going into this quarter. So expectations are extremely high. So Airbnb has to deliver in terms of the top and bottom line and especially guidance. Um, we've been hearing from some of the OTA CEOs who are saying that it's sort of leveling out or normalizing that shift between home rentals and hotels. Airbnb during the pandemic really doubled down on home sharing. So as people are going back to cities, are they benefiting? Do they have that hotel supply? Supply overall is always a important topic for all of the home sharing companies um, because they're really battling each other to meet that demand. So what they say around there is going to be interesting as well. ADR, that's its average daily rate. Airbnb has seen that grow at a much faster clip than some of the other OTAs. So we'll be watching that. But really, it's going to come down to guidance, Kelly, because investors want to know if they can justify this huge premium, really, that they do have over the OTAs in terms of its forward PE multiple. True. We're showing it as you speak about 44. Uh, dear uh, Gina, do you like Airbnb here? So this one's interesting. Deirdre's right that supply is an issue, but here's what we're looking for in guidance. If you look at pre-pandemic experience, 60% of Airbnb's uh, business and demand came from international travelers. And with China reopening, they're going to be very exposed to that. So that could be a plus that people are looking for. If you look at expectations going in, they are very high, but they've also been steadily increased um, over the last several months. So it's not as though analysts are walking back their expectations. So Airbnb does have to deliver and they have to give great guidance. So that's a pretty tall order to meet. Um, you know, it's not to say that they don't have some upside. Uh, the downside is going to be on whether or not they can get the supply online. What would make you, because as you say, you're sort of a hmm on the stock, Gina, what would make you feel more conviction, you know, one way or the other? It would be good to have them have an answer to how they're going to attract that supply and get it online, because if indeed they are exposed to that China reopening and they're benefiting from that 60 percent international business um, getting back to normal, then they really just need to have product there. So it's going to be about having product to sell. Uh, interesting, because I would have thought the opposite, you know, all about demand or prices of this. But you're right. It's kind of the same story with the housing market overall. So it all ties together. We'll leave it there, Deirdre. Thank you. And we'll turn to Taylor Morrison. That's the home builder 
before the bell tomorrow. Shares rallying 17% this year in the face of higher mortgage rates and the slowing real estate market. Diana Olick has the story. She's been all over it. Diana, what's their niche here? Well, really, they're in Arizona, which has seen a very big demand curve over the last couple of years. It's been a pandemic hotspot, but of course, some of the hottest spots from the pandemic have dropped the most. So we're going to be watching specifically at home prices and any talk of, you know, potential mortgage rate buy-downs, incentives over the quarter. But what's really interesting to watch in Taylor Morrison, as you said, the shares have been on a tear because mortgage rates have pulled back. And this period from October through December is when rates went from over 7% to down into the low 6% range. So at the end of the quarter in December, we want to see if there's any commentary about buyers really coming back into the market, perhaps some kind of surprise to the upside on new contracts. Now, the CEO has said that they've been faring very well, that they've been working with their potential buyers again again, with ways to incentivize them to bring costs down. But we always watch cancellation rates. You ought to see how many people are pulling out, concerned over the state of the economy, et cetera. But remember, also, we did see home builder sentiment pop up in January on reports of much more buyer traffic, sales, and sales expectations. So this should be a really interesting one to watch, Kelly. I don't know, Gina. It's, it's almost five times forward. You know, for a home builder, that's just crazy expensive. Yeah, I, I think the challenge, there's a few challenges here. They do have some, some say, have some tailwinds. Remember that we still are not where we need to be in terms of the, the overall supply of houses. Um, but interest rates were a huge hurdle. That has pulled back. But quite frankly, how much more are we going to get in terms of downside on the interest rates? I would say that probably not that much. In fact, we're talking about another rate hike before um, we sort of settle back down. And nobody's expecting a big kind of cutting cycle after the Fed is done hiking. Um, and that is going to be the continued headwind because a lot of the cancellations were partially because um, mortgage applications fell through. And that, that's a big problem. Right. Uh, so, you know, you do have to watch what happens here. Yeah, from a hum to a meh I, I mean, on this stock. We'll see, we'll see where we're going with Generac next. Diana, we'll let you go. Thank you, Diana Olick. And we will turn to Generac before the bell tomorrow, up eight, uh, 19% this year, I should say, after plummeting 71% in 2022. Get this. Generac shares peaked around $500 in November of 2021 and are trading around 120 today. The street keeping a close eye on how recession fears are impacting demand, how it's managing installation delays and inventory issues, any updates on its energy technology business. EPS and revenue have actually beaten 18 of the past 20 quarters. But Gina, so this is why I, I love this story. You didn't need crypto. You didn't need, you know, people buying titanium blocks, whatever it was. The shares of Generac themselves almost look like the dot-com chart from 1990. It's so interesting. Um, do you think the hangover is still going to persist here? Well, it depends on how much you need them to get back to some kind of a long-term, you know, sustainable PE. They're still a little high, but relative to where they were, yeah, they look cheap. Um, but of course, they were riding a, a, a cycle that was hitting a lot of the um, a lot of the solar companies, uh, a lot of the charging companies, electrical infrastructure, and they really took that to a whole nother level. So seeing them come back down to earth is important. I do think that they have a long-term business model. Um, and, you know, this could be something that in the long term could be a great buy. Is it there yet? It's still 18 times forward. Um, better than it used to be. 
but uh, you know, I think that we're still resetting in terms of what forward rates should be, what PEs make sense, sure. given a higher interest rate environment. And that is not played out. I just don't understand why there's not more of, of kind of a long-term tailwind here for all of the homeowners who bought in the last couple of years. Power outage issues are only getting worse, especially in big states like California with the, you know people who maybe can afford one of these massive home generators. So, I, you know, I, I feel the stock obviously got overvalued, but it would seem now that, that they should have, if anything, maybe more demand over the next couple of years, or, or maybe it got pulled forward and that's what everyone's upset about. Well, I think a lot of the value got both pulled forward. I mean, what does Warren Buffett say? The biggest risk you take is the price you pay. But I do think that I agree with you that there is a long term there's a long term business model here. And hey, I live in Los Angeles. We had a 32 hour outage and that was terrible. Wow. Um, and and first thing we looked at was was power backup. And so I don't think that anybody's going to argue that people don't need this this product. They do. Uh, it's just a matter of whether or not the the, you know, investors are going to make some money uh, buying it now. All right. Fair enough. Gina, great to see you uh, with the power on and everything. That's always good. Gina Sanchez with our trades today. That's it for Earnings Exchange. But don't miss our first on CNBC interview with the CEO of Generac tomorrow, uh, 2 p.m. Eastern time. Really look forward to speaking with Mr. Yagfeld. Still ahead, Amazon's back at it. CEO Andy Jassy says they're going big on retail stores. But with passphrase fizzling, will this time prove different? We'll discuss right after this. Welcome back to The Exchange. Amazon prepared to double down on physical stores. The company acquired Whole Foods five years ago, has more than 40 Amazon Fresh grocery locations, but so far hasn't really disrupted the industry. But CEO Andy Jassy telling the Financial Times he wants to, quote, go big on brick and mortar and blames the lack of normalcy during the pandemic for Amazon's stumbles. Let's bring in CNBC.com technology reporter Annie Palmer to discuss. Annie, I'm skeptical. I think I'll quote uh, CNBC familiar face Jan Niffen, who says they're just not very good at brick and mortar. Why should we think that's going to change now? Yeah, I think you're right to approach this with a bit of skepticism because on one hand, you know, Andy Jassy's saying we want to go big on physical retail, yet earlier this month, Amazon announced that they are pausing expansion of their fresh stores and they're even closing some fresh supermarkets and go convenience stores. So it's kind of hard to reckon with what exactly the plan is here. Unless maybe they leverage an existing partner like Kohl's. I think their shares uh, today might reflect some excitement around that in the same way that Whole Foods has worked because they basically just took the existing asset and uh, some would say ruined it. Others would say, no, it's it's still fine. It's still good. You know, it, it's still uh, usable. Um, so it, that could be a different template, I suppose. Yeah, it could be. You know, you're right. They do have these uh, returns and pickup partnership with Kohl's uh, department stores. And Amazon even has its own sort of new line of, of apparel and, and accessory stores called the Amazon Style Store. They're only in two states right now, California and Ohio. So it seems like they still have some sort of vision for expanding in physical retail beyond grocery. But it still seems a little bit early to tell, you know, what exactly their plans are. And I, I'm so surprised. I mean, if you had told people five or 10 years ago when Amazon was still so sexy and everything, you know, there were never going to be stores again because everything was going online. What, what does this tell you about the viability of their core business? Because it makes me wonder about it. If they have to go this hard into physical retail, which they were supposed to disrupt, that can't seem like a very good sign unless maybe you're a landlord. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. So I don't know if it says so much uh, or, or highlights any amount of weakness in their core retail, online retail business, so much as it shows that, you know, the majority of, of dollars and where they're being spent still is in offline retail. So I think Amazon is looking at, you know, there's still room to grow in the online retail space, but where are people spending their money, um, you know, most of the time? And that's in stores. So they feel like they kind of have to be there. The real world, forget the metaverse, the real world wins, Annie. That is the theme here. Uh, it's very reassuring, I guess, unless you're a shareholder. But maybe they'll get it right this time. Uh, we appreciate your time and all your information, Annie. And there's more, obviously, over at CNBC.com. That's Annie Palmer. Coming up, Palantir is profitable. Sales are surging on the back of their earnings. But it's not the only thing investors are excited about. We'll tell you what else is driving shares 15% higher. And while Palantir posted strong results, one strategist has a warning ahead of software and semiconductor reports that are still on deck. We've got all of that next. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back. Look at shares of Palantir surging 15% after an earnings and revenue beat today. They just po- uh, reported their first profitable quarter ever. Frank Holland is here with more on the story. Wow, Frank, the timing-wise, what all led into this? Well, Kelly, number one, the buzz around AI is a big part of it. As you mentioned, Palantir on course for its best day in just about two years after turning that quarterly profit for the first time and also guiding it'll be profitable this fiscal year. So a lot of excitement. This company's best known for its work with the U.S. military using data analytics and artificial intelligence. It saw its commercial customers, that's not military, increased by 79% last quarter. CEO Alex Karp says the recent buzz around AI is increasing customer interest in Palantir. The technologies we built that will allow you to do AI in private networks, institutions and enterprises, uh, have precursor technologies that will take other companies four or five years to build. For example, how do you do AI in a regulated context? In that case, he was talking about manufacturing, healthcare, other regulated industries here in the U.S. CARP also expects rising rates to have a minimal impact on Palantir because the company has almost no debt and $2.6 billion in cash in preparation for any economic downturn. I should have guessed it had something to do with AI. That's really interesting, especially, like you said, in a regulated environment. Frank, thank you. Kelly, thank you. Sticking with software, Chase Coleman's Tiger Global making some moves in the space in the fourth quarter. They've just filed that 13F. Christina Partsinevelis has the details. Tough year for them, Christina. What What moves did you see? Well, I want to start with the cloud names because many of them are getting the axe. Tiger cut its exposure to Datadog by 83%. So this is from going from Q3 to Q4. Although the stock right now, Datadog, is not really reacting. It's up 3.5%. They also cut exposure to Snowflake and ServiceNow. There's some huge drops in their fintech stakes. They cut Block by 51%. They also sold off shares of e-commerce names like Shopify and Toast, or you can call that fintech. Their Coinbase exposure, which uh, we know a lot of our viewers like, is down about 5%. And much like we are seeing from other hedge funds, there's been some moves in big cap tech. So Tiger Global boosting its share count in Amazon and Meta, but decreasing exposure to Alphabet and Microsoft. And then last honorable mention, Spotify. They initially had about six, a little bit over 6,000 shares in the name, but they bumped that up to over 500,000 shares, an increase of over 8,000% in Spotify. And for all of our viewers, keep in mind these holdings are as of December 31st and could have definitely changed in the last six weeks since. Kelly? All right, Christina, thank you. Tiger's cutting exposure to software. My next guest might agree with that move, with software and chips set to report over the next week and a half. He's warning there could be another shoe to drop. Chris Zenek is back. He's chief investment strategist at Wolf Research. Good to see you again, Chris. What are you, uh, what are you worried is around the corner here? Yeah, hi, Kelly. Thanks for having me on. You know, tech has bounced 
year to date for what we think is non-fundamental reasons. Uh, positioning was very negative coming into the year and hopes for a soft landing grew as we progressed during January and that led to a bid for, for tech stocks. But what we've witnessed over the last really two weeks since the payrolls report is higher interest rates and higher break-even rates on the inflation front. And we think at some point over the near term, that's going to catch up with tech stocks, semis, and software stocks within tech. You think, in other words, we've seen kind of a head fake here. Um, I, I, I hate to, you know, hate on the cats with the dead cat bounce language, but that's a little bit what, what you sound like you're warning about. So you think this is a bigger macro slowdown or just a valuation story? I think it's both. I think the tech P's have re-rated higher, even in the face of higher break-even rates. And we found a very strong relationship between tech P's and break-even rates. They're going and diverged in different directions, which is not a good sign. And secondly, this earnings season, tech EPS beats have been anemic and revenue surprises have gone negative, which is really the first time we've seen that consistently since 2012. The job cuts we've witnessed and seen over the last month too aren't good either. And so it gives us a lot of caution on that space overall. I think investors have piled into the space over hopes that the economy might do a little bit better. We're still in the deep recession camp for this year. We haven't changed our view. And today's inflation report actually emboldens our bearish view. Because you think it'll way. make the it Fed is, more hawkish? Indeed it will. I think that the, the break-even rates and Fed funds futures have adjusted to the point where, you know, the Fed's going to have to go higher and hold for longer. And that's just not good for high multiple stocks uh, that, frankly, I think have become more crowded recently. Look all the activism in software, right? I, I wouldn't want to own heavily owned software semi-names uh, that they've become very crowded again, I think. Fascinating. And, and I want to point out as well, when you go through earnings quality, I mean, you rate NVIDIA lower than Intel and lower than Zoom in that regard. So uh, to be continued, Chris, we'll definitely bring you back as we start to get more of these results in, but appreciate the warning. Thanks for your time today. Thank you. Chris Zenick with Wolf Research. Meanwhile, just a month until March Madness, there may be another sports gaming company going public. Going public? Who does that these days? We're going to talk about it and the impending fight for NBA streaming rights. It's one of the last big media deals that's coming up on Power Lunch. There's power forward Tyler Matheson getting ready. I will join him on the other side of this quick break.